before Jesus' crucifixion. There were two unusual things that are stated about Jesus. He had come as the promised Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, and yet near the end of his life on earth, he charges his disciples that they should tell no man that he was the Christ. Matthew 16 and verse 20. And we wonder why. Well, on several occasions, Jesus had commanded different ones not to reveal the signs that he had worked upon them. Here are some examples. In Matthew 8 and 4, after he came down from the mount, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he came into Capernaum and into the synagogue, and there was a leper. And he healed the leper, and he said, But tell no man. He restored sight to two blind men. And we read, And Jesus strictly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. That's Matthew 9 and 30. And there are other examples like that. And yet his signs were for the purpose of creating faith in him as the Son of God. John wrote his, his uh, gospel, chapter 20, 30, and 31. He said, Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that you might have life in his name. So the very purpose of his signs was not primarily compassion, though he was compassionate upon all. It was to convict people, convince them that he was working with God's power to show them that he was the Son of God, the one he claimed to be, the promised Messiah. The reason for this, and it's sometimes called Messiah Reserve, is related to the second unusual statement about Jesus. He had been teaching his disciples now about 30 months, nine months yet to go before his crucifixion, and while only nine months remain until his death, we read this. From that time began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised up. That's Matthew 16 and verse 21. Now to be sure, Jesus had given hints before this as to his death. But these had not yet been understood by friend or foe. At the front of his public ministry, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover, the first Passover at his beginning of his public ministry. He had attended all the others, I presume. But he makes a statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, John tells us that the disciples didn't understand that until after his resurrection. Then they remembered the scripture. But his opponents, his foes, remembered this because when they brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin, they remembered this very statement that he had made. Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Of course, we understood what he meant, or we understand now what he meant. You remember also the time he said, And Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness? 
and the Son of Man shall also be raised up. This is in John 3 and verse 14. Talking about being raised up on the cross. So he's referring to his death here. And the one that we're all familiar with, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Matthew 12, 38-40. So the answer to why Jesus did not want these disciples to tell anyone that he was the Christ and why he was just now beginning to explain it to them was they had the wrong concept as to the role of the Christ. They were convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Just a few minutes before, Peter is the one who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they all believed that. Mark 16 and 16. By his teaching, by his character, by these signs and wonders which he had performed, and even by the revelation of God, they knew that the Son of God was in their midst. You remember when, after Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. He had revealed it to them. And that plus all of the other things that Jesus had done convinced them. <clears throat> but their concept of Christ lacked much. It lacked the element of being a suffering servant. It lacked the element of atonement and resurrection. And it lacked the element of his priestly, kingly role. They didn't understand that. For example, when we turn back to Zechariah, <clears throat> next to the last prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it speaks about Christ, but here he's referred to as the branch, and we're familiar with that term elsewhere in the prophets. Jesus was and is the branch. These two verses say, <clears throat> And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Jehovah of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch and he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of Jehovah not talking about the material temple he's talking about the spiritual temple the church the kingdom even he shall build the temple of Jehovah and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and, he, and, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Jesus, the branch, was going to sit upon his throne as a king and as a priest. Now, he couldn't do that while he's upon the earth. He was not a priest while here. Hebrews 7 and 8 tells us this, because Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. All the Levites, well, let's say from the tribe of Levite, the priests had to come, and specifically from Aaron, who was a son of Levi. So Jesus came from Judah, he didn't come from Levi, so he couldn't have been a priest on the earth. 
Now, these folks say that Jesus is going to come back to this earth and be a king. Zechariah said he's going to be a king and a priest. He can't be that on the earth. He was not a king. He was not the priest. That took place when he went back to heaven. But the Jews, the disciples, they did not understand that. And this was a part uh, of the, the rule of the Christ they did not have in their mind. And so it was difficult for them to harmonize the idea of a suffering servant with a reigning king like King David, a political king. Remember in John 6:15, Jesus had just fed 5,000 miraculously, not counting the women and the children. Now that gave a sign to some people that here we have a man who may be able to drive the Romans out. And verse 15 says, Jesus therefore perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again into the mountain himself alone. They wanted someone to be their king, but a political king, not a saving spiritual king that he became. <clears throat> In Luke 1, 32 and 33, we have the angel Gabriel talking to the Virgin Mary, telling her that she had been selected to be the, the mother of Jesus. And then in chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, we find a description of this Jesus. But first, before we read that, notice this. Steve Allen. He died uh, a year or two ago. He was sort of like the David Letterman, uh, Jay Leno, uh, Johnny Carson. He was one of the first to have sort of a comedian-like program late at night. He was a musician. He was an author. Well, he wrote a book. And the title of his book came out in 1990 was Steve Allen on the Bible, Religion, and Morality. And in this book, he viciously attacks the Bible, the scriptures. And here's an example of one of the mistakes that Alan claims to have found in the gospel records. This is in Luke 1, 32 and 33, and I'll read it to us. This is Gabriel talking to, to Mary about Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Uh, Steve Allen says this prophecy never was fulfilled and will never be fulfilled. That's on page 274. Well, was he right? Which would mean Gabriel and Luke were wrong? We don't think so. The fact is, Mr. Allen and made the same crass mistake that the children of Israel made in the first century about the Christ, about the coming Messiah. He's viewed this passage as a prediction that Jesus would sit upon a literal, political throne of David. We know that the declaration has to do with the Lord's spiritual kingdom. And that took place when he went back to heaven 
sat down at the right hand of God, sent the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, and that began on the day of Pentecost. It's a spiritual kingdom. And this is exactly the significance of Peter's preaching in Acts 2. Let me read a few verses there. He quotes David from Psalm 16. And then he shows that this was not, though written by David, was not applied to David himself. And then he tells us who it applies to. I'll just read verse 27 of the uh, prophecy. Acts 2, 27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul unto Hades, neither wilt thou give the Holy One to see corruption. And since David's talking, it sounds like it's David. But after he gives that quotation, he begins, verse 29, Brethren, I may say unto you freely of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us unto this day. So it could not apply to David because he's still in his grave, in his tomb. He's talking about a resurrection. Talking about somebody that would not be left there long enough to see corruption. His spirit would not be left in Hades. That did not apply to David. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins he would set one upon his throne, that is David's throne. He foreseeing this spake of the resurrection of Christ, that neither was he, David, left unto Hades, nor, no, wait a minute, that neither was he, Christ, left unto Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus did. God raised him up. Whereof we are all witnesses, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this, the Holy Spirit, upon the apostles, which ye see and hear. Now notice verse 34. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, two lords, no, they're just one Lord, but there are two divine personalities composing that Lord. The Lord, the God the Father, said unto my Lord, the Lord God the Son, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. So <clears throat> these passages in Luke 1, 32 and 33 show us that Jesus was to be the Christ he was, to be, uh, he was to reign as king in heaven, not upon the earth. So Jesus' task was to show his disciples what the role of the Messiah involved. It ultimately would be triumphant, but that victory was not to be limited to an earth-bound glory, but of a heavenly glory, and it must involve the cross that they could not comprehend. Now when Peter heard Jesus say that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, he understood very well what that meant. And with the best of intentions, Peter wanted God to have mercy on Jesus and to spare him all that suffering. 
but it sounds like Peter forgot his place of discipleship. He takes the Lord aside, and he says to him, Be it far from thee, Lord, this will never be under thee. He didn't understand, did he? And he sounds like he knew more than his master knew what course to pursue. Peter's words amounted really to the same thing that the devil said to Jesus in the wilderness. After his baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. He was there fasting for 40 days and nights. And the devil appeared to him. We read about three of the temptations, one of which the devil took Jesus upon an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to Jesus, Oh, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now that must have been comical to Jesus. For the Lord, the God, the creator of all things to bow down and serve the devil? But Jesus replied, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That's Matthew 4, 8 through 10. To Peter, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art a stumbling block unto me. Matthew 16 and verse 23. Just a few minutes before, I don't know how many, but it's in the same sort of time. <clears throat> Jesus said, had said to Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And now what's he saying? Get thee behind me, Satan. Of course, we understand Satan means an adversary, an opposer. And by his suggesting that Jesus need not die on the cross, was opposing the divine plan. Had Jesus heeded Peter's way, he would have been following Satan's suggestion that we just talked about. When he was tempted to fall down and worship him, the rock, that's Jesus, had become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to Peter. The disciples did not understand Christ's role in being a Savior. Now, it's in view of this that Jesus now tells his disciples that if they would be his followers, they must follow him, and they would be following a crucified Christ, following a crucified Messiah. And this is the setting for Jesus' teaching about being a disciple. He said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever would save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what shall a man be profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What was the setting? The setting was, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. 
and you're going to follow a crucified Savior? If you do, you're going to have to be like your master. You're going to have to be willing to deny yourself. Take up your own cross and follow me. Give up on trying to mask the things of this world. Lose your life for my sake, and then you will gain it. Just as many in that day did not understand the Christ or his role, there are those today who do not understand what it is to be a Christian, a child of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain. And it's in this setting. He's going to be crucified. And if any man would come after me, he's going to be following a crucified Savior. What does he say? He says, deny thyself. <clears throat> there was no youth professor, University of Oklahoma, who said that if Christianity meant owning a large house and a second house and two cars and stocks and bonds and money and all of these kind of material things, then he would be interested in being a Christian. Well, in a way, he, he had a concept about Christianity that did not go along with all those possessions, did he? But he wasn't interested. Jesus teaches to be a Christian, you must learn self-denial. You cannot follow me otherwise. Deny one, to deny oneself means to say no to our sinful ego which puts self first. The prophet Daniel, he was a young prophet, young man, in 606 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and other seed royal, taken, by Bab uh, taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And these men were selected to be trained over a three-year program to be, become advisors to the king. But Daniel could see that in the regime that was being presented to him, that it involved things that he could not accept as a child of God. In Daniel 1 and verse 8, we read, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's dainties nor with the wine which the king drank. He said, no. And he convinced the man over him and all of that program to change their ways to his way. He was able to say no stronger than anybody else in the Old Testament. If God were to grant you or me any request, like he granted young King Solomon, <clears throat> The power to say no would mean much in living a successful Christian life. Robert Louis Stevenson was a, uh, and is a famous Scottish author, lived in the 19th century, wrote such books as Treasure Island, Kidnap, uh, Dr. Shekel, Mr. Hyde, or Mr. Hyde and Dr. Shekel, whichever. 
and other books. <clears throat> he was spiritually minded. He said one day to a young man, stop saying amen to what the world says and keep your soul alive. Another by inspiration said the same thing many years ago when he said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and holy and acceptable will of God. Let me ask you some questions. <clears throat> sort of, sort of uh, think questions. If we were in a Bible class situation, we could spend more time and get various answers, but uh, we can't. So let me just ask you the question. You think about it. <clears throat> Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me now. Does that mean to you Following, and I'll give you four suggestions. Following Jesus means, <clears throat> following Jesus is no picnic. When he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. We use that expression, well, that, that's, a, that's no picnic. You go on a picnic, you, you kind of go with your friends, you go with your family, uh, you're taking time off, you're trying to forget about your worries and your problems, and because sometimes there are ants to interfere with the nice picnic. But generally, it's a, it's a time of pleasure. Is that what Jesus is saying here? When you follow me and you deny yourself, that's not going to be a picnic. But there are some good things and there are occasionally some bad things that come to a picnic and in the Christian life. There are many blessings that we have where we wouldn't want to be a Christian. Ephesians 1 and 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. In a sense, it's like a picnic, being a Christian. What about the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace? Are those not benefits? But if we deny ourselves, that means, well, it's that Christian life's not like a picnic. Or another question, <clears throat> another alternative. Does it mean if you've got any reservations, now is the time to get out? <laughs> if you have any thoughts, any, any objections about living the Christian life, instead of just going on and on and on and find out that's not really what you want, why not just get out now? I wouldn't recommend that, no. If there are any reservations, we need to work through those reservations. This is God's will. God is perfect. He wouldn't expect us to do things that were not for our own good. But we've got a reservation about this. Let's find out what the Lord really wants us to do about that. Another possibility. <clears throat> Does what Jesus require mean uh, it's going to uh, cost you everything? Being a Christian, does that cost us everything? Well, I already quoted Ephesians 1, 3. 
every spiritual blessings in Christ won't cost us those. Is it going to cost us everything? Doesn't living the Christian life provide joy, fellowship, a Christian family, the best kind of life to live? That we can overcome the temptations the world has to put up with and the consequences of living like the world? No, we couldn't accept that alternative. One other is shape up or ship out. I think they use that in the military, don't they? Now, here are the regulations. You shape up or get out. Shape up or ship out. But certainly, if there are things that are in our life that uh, we're a little bit weak on, we need to shape up. And Christianity is a growing religion. We should be doing things or not doing things today that we were or were not doing 10 years ago. So we need to shape up. Here's another thought. When I compare my spiritual life to Jesus' call to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him, I feel like four alternatives. One, I feel like starting over. When I compare my spiritual life to what the Lord requires of me as a Christian, and I say, well, I failed there and I failed there, that ought to make me want to start over again. Or two, running away. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Three, yawning. What else is new? I mean, can't you talk about something else? Yawning about it? I'm not interested. That's no alternative. And fourthly, going for it. I think that's about what the, uh, the Olympic uh, athletes and maybe other athletes want to go. Let's go for it. There's the goal. And that's what we want. So go for it. Put all you've got into it, being like Jesus wants you to be. One other question. <clears throat> what would it mean for you to deny yourself? <clears throat> One, does it mean stop focusing on my problems? Well, maybe when we think about the word focus, I mean, we all may have problems. And we have to deal with those problems. But maybe we don't have to focus on them. You know, all of our attention is going to those problems. Not thinking about anybody else or anything else. I'm focusing upon my problems. I don't think the Lord likes that. <clears throat> what would it mean if I deny myself? Does it mean I should think more about others? Well, I think so, yeah. Get my attention off of me on other people. <clears throat> we should not grow weary in well-doing. If, you know, in, in due time we shall reap if we faint not. What's pure and undefiled religion? It's visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. It's helping one another. It's helping other people. 
Stop focusing on my problems. Think more about others. Or never do anything for myself. No, I don't think the Lord meant that. We're stewards. We take care of ourselves. We are to have... Well, we need a body that we can do things. You remember Paul had a problem. And he asked the Lord three times, remove this from me. The Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. And so Paul kept on and accomplished a lot for the Lord. But he had a problem. He just overcame it and kept going. Kept going. Put Christ's desires above mine. Never do anything for myself. No, we talked about that. Well, those are just some thoughts. <clears throat> Deny oneself. Then he says, take up your cross and follow me. Well, take up one's cross. The cross is an instrument of death. He's talking about dying to ourselves. To take up our cross means to willingly enter into a path of obedience and service for God that may entail the loss of earthly possessions and friends and the enduring of hardships and difficulties of a severe nature, all for the sake of Christ. Take up your cross. It means a willingness to lay aside opportunities for earthly advancement, be willing to live in more or less obscurity, if that were to be the will of God. It means the denial of luxuries and self-interest and ambitions in order to walk with the rejected Christ in a hostile world. I believe J.W. McGarvey put it real well in his comments on this verse. He that maketh his own life the chief object of his endeavor really fails the more he seems to succeed. Let me read that again. He that makes his own life the chief object of his endeavor really fails the more he seems to succeed. One reason many do not become Christians and why some do not remain faithful Christians after making a good confession is that they're not willing to deny themselves. We've heard the expression, God never promised smooth sailing, but a safe landing. And the landing will be in heaven. But he wants us to carry on, follow in his steps. And he gave us an example, not only of dying for our sins, but to endure he understood self-denial. And when we look at his example, that should encourage us and strengthen us to try to do that better each day. We have a song of invitation. If you have not obeyed the gospel, we'd like to encourage you to do that tonight. If you have other needs as God's people, and we can help in a public way or private way, let us know as we stand and sing.